We turn in God's Word this evening to 1 Corinthians 6 and 7. We begin reading at 1 Corinthians 6 verse 15. And we read through verse 9 of chapter 7. 1 Corinthians 6, beginning at verse 15. The Apostle Paul, the inspired apostle, gives very down-to-earth instruction regarding um, the whole subject matter of adultery and keeping our bodies chaste and pure. 1 Corinthians 6, starting at verse 15. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God? And ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. And come together again, that Satan tempt you not, for your incontinency. Incontinency means lack of self-control. But I speak this by permission and not of commandment. For I would that all men were even as I myself. But every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner and another after that. I say therefore to the unmarried and widows, It is good for them if they abide even as I, but if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. So far we read God's holy and infallible word. It's on the basis of this passage of Scripture and on the basis of many passages of Scripture that we have the instruction of Lord's Day 41 of the Heidelberg Catechism, found on page 23 in the back of the Psalter. Lord's Day 41, <clears throat> 
What doth the seventh commandment? What doth the seventh commandment teach us? That all uncleanness is accursed of God, and that therefore we must with all our hearts detest the same, and live chastely and temperately, whether in holy wedlock or in single life. Doth God forbid in this commandment only adultery and such like gross sins? Since both our body and soul are temples of the Holy Ghost, He commands us to preserve them pure and holy. Therefore, He forbids all unchaste actions, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever can entice men thereto. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this evening we come to the Catechism's treatment of the Seventh Commandment. The Seventh Commandment states, Thou shalt not commit adultery. This commandment has to do with human sexuality and how we are to live in sexual purity, whether in married life or in single life. There's a lot that can be said in connection with this seventh commandment. There's a lot that needs to be said in connection with this commandment. In fact, the struggle is really to determine what to say in the limited time that we have this evening. And what I thought best was to have a sermon this evening that would be especially geared towards the young people and young adults. We've got young adults tonight studying Daniel chapter 6, so I know, I think, there will be more young adults here than usual. I know there's been mentioned by some that they want preaching, especially for the young people and the young adults, and so I wanted to take the opportunity tonight to bring a word that is going to be especially helpful for the young adults. You young adults and young people have it tough. You have so many negative and harmful examples in the culture around you. It is, it is not cool in our society to live a chaste and temperate life. You have many temptations. The culture tries to desensitize you to sexual sins all the time. You need to have a good word brought to you. And that's what we hope to bring tonight. And it's for... These reasons also, and for other reasons, that I want to spend two sermons on this commandment. We need good instruction on this commandment. We need clear instruction. We need positive instruction and good examples to follow. Perhaps more than ever before, we must be those who are fighting, actively fighting, being, being very intentional in fighting for sexual purity. So this evening, we're going to look at the seventh commandment rather generally, and then next Sunday, Lord willing, we will look at a biblical example of a godly young man. We will look at Joseph and how Joseph fled as he resisted the advances of a seductive woman, the strange woman. This evening, we take as our theme, worshiping God by fleeing adultery, worshiping God by fleeing adultery. Adultery. And we look at that theme under three points. First, we look at what adultery is. Second, we make application, especially for the young adults. And then third, we look at why this is so serious. The seventh commandment states, Thou shalt not commit adultery. What is adultery? 
Well, in order to answer that question, it's helpful first to ask and to answer another question. What is sex? What is sex? Well, the biblical view of sex begins with recognizing and acknowledging that our sexuality is a gift from God. After all, it was God himself on the sixth day of the creation week who made them male and female. Male and female created he them. God created Adam as a male and Eve as a female. And when God brings us into this world, He has also created us either as a male or as a female. You are either, by the creation of God, a male, or you are, by the creation of God, a female. That's how God has created us, and that is simply for us to recognize and acknowledge who I am as a male, how God created me as a male, or who I am as a female, and how God created me as a female, is part of God's own work with me, And I honor God by rejoicing in how He has made me, either as a male or female. Not only is there that basic reality, there is also this, that when God made Adam a male and made Eve a female, God also brought Eve to Adam to be his wife. God instituted marriage and then God also said explicitly to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. And with that command, God commanded Adam and Eve in marriage to have intercourse. The point is simply this. Our sexuality is a gift from God. And the physical union between a husband and wife in sexual intimacy was part of God's own idea and creation in the first place. It was part of the goodness of God's creation. Having said that, however, the second main thing that we need to say is this. While our sexuality is a gift from God, God also created the marriage bond as the specific place, as the sphere in which the gift of sexual activity is to be enjoyed. God not only created human sexuality, but God also has created the institution of marriage. And God created the institution of marriage exactly as that place where the gift of sexual activity is to be enjoyed and where human sexuality can be expressed in an intimate, physical, and sanctified way with one's spouse. This is the place, according to how God, our Maker, Himself has created it, this is the place where sexual intimacy is good and fitting and profitable. Not outside marriage. We were not designed and equipped to experience and enjoy sex outside of marriage. Well, that raises the question then, what is marriage? Well, marriage is the lifelong bond that God establishes between one man and one woman. We just had a sermon a few weeks ago on marriage. Marriage is God's creation, and God created marriage for companionship. In marriage, God says, a man and a woman become one flesh, and they become one flesh in every way, emotionally. Relationally, spiritually, there is the merging of a husband's and a wife's life together. And now physically, that one flesh relationship comes to expression in physical intimacy. Sexual intimacy provides a physical expression of the overall union that God, through marriage, creates. The bond of marriage is a multifaceted bond. There is a complete sharing of oneself with the other. And that's true, not just emotionally, not just spiritually, but physically too. 
And that's something that the Apostle Paul makes very plain. He's very explicit about that in 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7 tells us that the marriage union is so strong that in marriage, a husband no longer has power over his own body and a wife no longer has power over her own body or authority over his or her own body. But they must willingly give themselves physically to the relationship. They must share themselves and all that they are with the other in marriage in a sanctified way. And in a sense... That physical intimacy in the marriage bed serves as a sign, a kind of a physical sign between husband and wife of the entire union that God has established between husband and wife. A union of love and of care and holiness. And that's something we must always be aware of. Sexual intimacy in marriage is never just a physical act. It is rather an expression of It ought to be an expression of the marriage relationship as a whole. And at the same time, it's also part of the joy of the relationship. The physical act of sexual intimacy in marriage is itself a demonstration and a reflection of the intimate love and the care and mutual concern and mutual enjoyment and mutual delight and pleasure that exists between husband and wife in the whole of their marriage. Physical intimacy in marriage is an expression of all the different aspects and moods and expressions of your marriage relationship as a whole. It's a reflection of the gentleness, the mutual respect and understanding and honor and, and, and servitude that is enjoyed and that is experienced and that is to be nurtured in the marriage relationship as a whole. In this way, physical intimacy is to be a very holy and pure thing. It is something that God himself has set aside as something special and significant and symbolic in marriage. It is to be guarded jealously by husband and wife. It is something to be kept private. It is a holy thing. It is an expression of their union, their love, their one flesh relationship. And it is to be treated carefully by husband and wife. And when sexual intimacy reflects the love and the deep care, and the gentleness, and the mutual concern that the husband and the wife have for each other in the whole of their life, then that sexual intimacy in marriage is also something that God himself takes great delight in. It's a demonstration of holy love, holy love. It's a reflection of the holy love of God himself. And that is what sex is in the Christian marriage. So I've just finished saying that God has created marriage as the place where sexual intimacy is to take place. And now when we've said that much, we can go back and we can answer the question, what is adultery? We can understand now better how to answer that question. What is adultery? Well, specifically, very narrow in our scope, adultery is the act of a married person in which that married person takes that physical intimacy that God has reserved for the marriage relationship, and he takes it outside the marriage bond. Adultery is the act of making common what God has made holy in marriage. God has made sexual intimacy holy. God has set it apart. God has set it apart only for the marriage bond. And adultery is taking what God has reserved for marriage and taking it outside of marriage. 
And besides that, adultery is an offensive violation. It's, it's a violation against one's own person, and it's a violation against one's own spouse. And it's a violation against that one flesh relationship between two people. Adultery is sinning against, really, all the other commandments of God. It's sinning against the way that God has created us. Because this is how God has created us, so that, so that this physical sexual intimacy is safe and it's appropriate in only that institution that God has established in marriage. Adultery is lying. Adultery is always the expression of the lie. Adultery is saying something with our bodies that is simply not true according to reality. Adultery is murder. Adultery is hating and attacking that one flesh relationship that is a person's marriage. And adultery is always idolatry, worshiping ourselves instead of God. And adultery can only bring misery and brokenness. But that's adultery. Now God brings beauty for ashes, but that's in spite of the sin. Adultery, adultery can bring only misery and brokenness. God brings other things in His own amazing grace and mercy. But that's adultery, strictly speaking. Adultery becomes broader, and the commandment becomes suddenly much more encompassing when we add this to it, that any sexual activity outside the bond of marriage and any enticement towards doing that is a violation of marriage and a violation of the seventh commandment. What we can say is this. The primary purpose of the seventh commandment is to protect marriage and what God has reserved for the marriage bond. The purpose of the seventh commandment is to protect married persons in their marriages. It is to protect single persons for the time when they might get married. And it's also to protect the honor and dignity that is the marriage relationship itself. And it is given to protect us and our neighbor from hurting one another. That's the summary of the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now applied to marriage and and the whole sphere of who we are as, as God made us as in our human sexuality. Whether we are single or married, God wants us to honor His institution of marriage, and we honor it by living a chaste and temperate life. And anything that would attack or violate or minimize and ignore the institution of marriage is a sin against the seventh commandment. And then besides that, whether we are single or married, any fornication or any sin against the seventh commandment is also a sin against our own selves, right? That's what Paul writes. Whoever commits fornication sinneth against his own body. It's a sin against our own selves, and it's a sin against those whom we use to commit these sins. When a man lusts against a woman or after a woman, thinking sexual thoughts, not only is that man attacking God's institution of marriage and wanting to take what God has reserved for marriage and take it outside of marriage, but further, that man is, is not loving his neighbor. He's not seeking out her good and her happiness. He's not seeking out how she might honor and serve the Lord with her whole being in her body and soul, but he is seeking out how she might be used for him and his own physical sexual pleasure. And then furthermore, that man is not only failing to love his neighbor, as I said, he's doing hurt to his own soul. 
He is doing hurt to how God created him as one who can properly enjoy sexual intimacy only in the marriage bond. He is sowing seed to the flesh that will only reap corruption. The seventh commandment, therefore, rules out much more than just the strict physical act of adultery. The seventh commandment rules out any pornography, and there could be a whole sermon on that. Any images, any sexual innuendo, any dirty language that might entice an individual to think impure thoughts or act out impure actions are not to be tolerated. The seventh commandment forbids a married man to flirt with another woman or a single man to get close to someone else's wife. And in order to forestall temptation, a certain social distance needs to be maintained and respected. We understand that. We get that. We feel that. The seventh commandment also forbids a married woman to seek primary emotional support from some other man than her husband. Right? Having those emotional affairs, whether that be at work or at church or an internet chat room. And that's because, to put it positively, the seventh commandment requires husbands and wives to nurture their love for one another, not just sexually, but their love for each other emotionally and, and spiritually in their marriage. The seventh commandment also forbids, then, many other kinds of sins. Prostitution, sexual violence, and other things, which are even a shame simply to mention. As the Catechism states, God forbids all unchaste actions, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever can entice men thereto. So this is what adultery is. Adultery is the act of taking the physical intimacy that God has reserved for the marriage relationship and taking it outside the marriage bond. Adultery is the act of making common what God has made holy. Now there is much more that we could say about adultery and what it involves, but as I said in the introduction, I want to focus a little bit more this evening on how the seventh commandment applies to young men and young women who are or who want to be in a dating relationship. Because this is a very real thing for you. And who are or who want to be in a dating relationship. Oftentimes, couples that are dating wonder how far they can go physically in their relationship. And then we might say, well, the Bible doesn't, doesn't say where the line is exactly, as if there's a, a nice, convenient Bible verse that we can that we can make our children memorize, although there are good verses we can memorize. But, but what's, what's God's will here? What's God's commandment here for us in, in our dating relationship or as I look to dating? Maybe there are two things that we can say to help young people and help young adults in this area and help shape their thoughts. Two very concrete things. Maybe the first thing that we can say is rather blunt and maybe what I'm going to say is rather obvious to many of us. Maybe some of us will even be sensitive to, to having this said across the pulpit. We might not think it's good to mention these things, but, but maybe it's also good that we actually hear these things so that we can actually be convicted of these things. Having the whole counsel of God preached across the pulpit. Because maybe we need to be convicted of these things. And we can't just assume that we understand these things, right? So let me say this first of all. Until a man and a woman are actually married, they do not have the right to enjoy the sexual parts of one another's bodies. Young adults, that's 
A simple and obvious line in the sand that can and must be drawn and that may not be crossed. And that's only the first line that we're going to draw in the sand. But there's more that we have to say beyond this. But I think this is a helpful rule for many young adults to actually hear and take in. Until a man and a woman are actually married, they do not have the right and it is inappropriate and against God's will for them to enjoy the sexual parts of one another's bodies. Young man, young woman, don't do it. That's reserved for the holy institution of marriage. And now, congregation, I say it this bluntly because so often today, this is exactly the kind of thing that is tolerated as something that dating couples can do. And we need to have self-examination when it comes to our own churches and our own covenant communities. This is something that's, that is tolerated as something that dating couples can do. They fool around with each other sexually and they think it is normal. And they think that because it is normal, they can do it. And they think, well, this is what others are doing too. And it is displeasing to the Lord. They are taking what God has reserved for marriage and taking it outside of marriage. They are intentionally tempting each other and sinning with each other. And they are doing damage not only to themselves, but even to their relationship. And they they know it. They feel it too. And they are only setting themselves up for more difficult battles and more grievous sins to come if the Lord does not lead them in the right way. Or what sometimes happens is also this. A young couple can put off marriage and that young couple doesn't want to be mature enough to get married or bear the responsibilities of marriage. Or maybe they they keep off marriage until college is finished or or until they've established a career for themselves, and yet all the while they think that they are mature enough to actually indulge each other sexually. And that becomes a snare for them. That's something Paul himself speaks about very frankly in 1 Corinthians 7. He writes, To avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and every woman have her own husband. And again, he writes, but if they cannot contain, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn. That is to burn with passion. The place for enjoying your sexuality in the way that we're talking about it tonight is in the marriage bond, the exclusive lifelong bond of marriage. A young man and a young woman should not be putting themselves through torture to avoid fornication. Rather, the answer is right in front of you. Get married already. And obviously, this is where young adults and and young people maybe even need to be wise right from the outset of a dating relationship, even before they're in a dating relationship. They need to be wise to be characterized by self-control, to be characterized by holiness and maturity and purity right when you enter into the dating relationship. Exactly so that your emotions and your physical feelings and the physical aspect of the relationship doesn't lead you, either on the one hand, to commit fornication, to enjoy the sexual parts of one another's body, or on the other hand, to make a rash and foolish decision to get married simply on the basis of physical feelings. How disastrous that can be too. That's not what I'm advising when I say get married already. 
But how disastrous that can be too. That kind of thing happens simply because young people and young adults acted very, very foolishly, very quickly in a relationship and they're overcome with the feelings and they're sto- they've stopped thinking sober-mindedly. And when we look at 1 Corinthians 7, we see that there's even more pertinent instruction that Paul gives. Because in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 1, Paul writes, Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And the word touch there means rather literally to set ablaze. It means to touch in such a way that something is kindled and set on fire. It is good for a man not to touch a woman in the sense that a fire of passions is kindled and set aflame and you start burning with passion. Well, that's exactly what can happen when a dating couple begins to kiss or touch. There is the kind of kissing and touching that kindles a fire of passion within someone. There is touching that leads to, and that is really the prelude, you might even say the preparation for fornication. And so Paul says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Paul says, this is right, this is good, to avoid fornication. This is what you want to do. You want to avoid that inappropriate touching that kindles a fire of passions and that leads to fornication. You might want to, but this is even where the line needs to be drawn. Even here. And so now we can add something more. We've made one line in the sand. Right? And now we're going to move that line even further and we're going to say, don't even entice each other to sexual sin by the way you touch or kiss each other. That's where the battle for sexual purity starts. If you want to be strong and not lead yourself into temptation, that's where the line is. That's where the line needs to be drawn. Young men, don't entice your girl into impure actions and thoughts. But be a man of God in your relationship. Show her who Christ is. Yes, pursue that woman. Pursue that woman as Christ pursued the church. Be a man in that way. But even then, be ready, first of all, to lay down your life for her. And make that vow before taking her to yourself. Even as Christ laid down his life for his bride. Young woman, don't entice your man. Don't entice your man into impure actions and thoughts, but be modest and pure, even as you let that man pursue you, and you show that you're interested in that man. Yes, there is a sharing with each other that takes place in dating, but that physical, that sexual aspect we're talking about is reserved for marriage. This is also a verse 1 Corinthians 7 verse 1, this is also a verse upon which the church grounds her prohibition against dancing. That kind of sexual dancing that, that, that you know about. There is touching in dancing that leads to, and that is the prelude to, fornication. That's simply the reality of it, and I think we all understand that. Really, what else is the point of that kind of dancing, right? Let's be honest about that. In order to flee fornication and keep ourselves unspotted from it, to avoid, uh, to, to safeguard ourselves, we avoid dancing. And we certainly don't give our stamp of approval upon it. Parents who give their stamp of approval on it are only leading their children into temptation. 
And they are not looking out for their children's happiness. As the catechism states, God forbids all unchaste actions, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever can entice men there too. And what else is dancing? Right? We're talking about that dancing, not David's dancing when he was skipping and leaping for joy when the ark was being brought to Jerusalem. We know the kind of dancing we're talking about. I think this is a practical word for parents, too. Parents, if your young people are in dating relationships, and, and they're not at the age where they can really pursue marriage, you need to help them out by helping them avoid those situations where they might begin to burn for each other or begin to touch each other. That's why you don't allow them to go to the dances. Or that's why you don't allow them to be by themselves late at night. Or that's why you arrange the furniture in your home the way that you do. And you make those simple rules and you enforce those rules for what happens on a date so that you monitor the relationship. Because that's what godly parents are for. To help their children to keep from falling into these sins in their relationships. Young people, be very, very thankful if you have parents who show their care and concern for these things in your lives. Young people, young adults, talk with them. Tell them your struggles so that they can help you and give you wisdom and give you instruction, give you that accountability. Maybe it's even worthwhile to question whether a young person should be in a dating relationship to begin with. That's why parents sometimes have those rules, right? That's what parents are for, to protect. Parents, be bold to exercise your parental authority for the sake of your children's protection. If they don't understand it, well, maybe that's showing they're, they're not yet mature enough to, to appreciate it. But they need it. And again, what we need to remember is this. What is human sexuality for? Why did God create it? God created it so that in the marriage bond, a husband and a wife might give themselves to each other and express their love for each other in a very intimate and beautiful way. What young adults are doing before marriage when they're dabbling in sexual sins is simply this. They're not loving the other person, but simply seeking out personal sexual satisfaction. Right? Looking at what love is from God's point of view. Because God is love. He knows what love looks like. Now in marriage there is a sense in which there is this function. God has given marriage so that a man and a woman might live together with a clean conscience in marriage. Right? Better to marry than to burn. But there's, there's no place for that activity in dating. That's the point. God has reserved that experience, that intimacy for marriage. And we can put it this way too. Sexual intimacy is something that requires great maturity. Great maturity when it comes to loving another person. If a person is not mature enough to make a lifelong commitment to the other person and to love a person in that way and make those vows, if they're not ready and mature enough to make that kind of commitment, well, then it stands to reason that that person isn't mature enough to handle the intimacy that marriage contains either. The intimacy of marriage is reserved for those who have bound themselves to each other in a lifelong commitment. There's safety in that, where they have promised to share all that they are with each other exclusively, and there's nothing casual about it. 
Well, I said that there were two ways we can, two things we can say to help young people and young adults in in this area. I've already said one thing. And the second thing that we can say is this. In a dating relationship, true love for God and true love for the other person doesn't just ask the question, how far are we allowed to go in this relationship? Rather, true love for God and true love for the other person asks the question, how can I protect my sexual purity? How can I preserve the joy of this person I love? And how can we together honor God in this dating relationship? You see, this is something that not just parents are concerned about. This is something that Christians who are growing up into mature Christians are concerned with. If I truly love this person, if I truly love this person as a sister in Christ, right, and we're brothers and sisters in the Lord, and we are not yet married, and this person eventually breaks up with me, or I break up with her, I don't want this person to have memories and experiences with me that are a stumbling block for her in any further relationship. If I love her as a sister in Christ, that will be my attitude. I want to protect that kind of harm and that damage from possibly taking place. Furthermore, in a dating relationship, even within the dating relationship, I'm called to love this person as a brother or sister in Christ. And so I interact with her as a sister in Christ. I seek out her spiritual well-being. I want her to be holy for God. I want to be holy for her. I don't, and for God, I don't want to lead her into any sin, and I don't want to lead her into any sin as it pertains to the seventh commandment either. Indeed, I should be pursuing a boyfriend or a girlfriend that wants to be just as careful as I am, as I should be, as I should be, that we don't break the seventh commandment, right? I want someone to date who's just as careful as I want to be about keeping this commandment. If my girlfriend or my boyfriend doesn't care about sexual purity in our relationship, I should become disturbed and offended. After all, it's one thing to struggle against sin, right? And it's one thing to have those desires that are telling me that it would be good for me to get married. But it's an entirely different thing if there is no struggle there at all, right? Doesn't this person have a spiritual life? Doesn't this person have a relationship with God? Doesn't this person have the desire, like me, to do what is right? And vice versa. If I am not showing a care to be sexually pure in a dating relationship, then I should be glad when my boyfriend or girlfriend is becoming disturbed and offended with me. If a boyfriend and a girlfriend can't hold each other accountable and help each other to stay away from sin... And rather, if your boyfriend or girlfriend simply seems to have no care about these things and no care for honoring God in these ways, well then, you need to seriously reevaluate your relationship and see if that really is a person you want to be married with, married to. And see if that person is going to be that help, that spiritual help to your marriage. If I'm going to have a spouse that is jealous for our marriage, right? This lifelong bond. If I'm going to have a spouse that's going to be jealous for my marriage, I first need to see that this person is jealous already in dating life to be pure and holy before the Lord. 
Because ultimately what comes first? My relationship with, with this person or our relationship with the Lord, our God and our Savior? And that's, that's what dictates how we act in our dating relationship. That comes first. And that leads us to the consideration of why this is so serious. And, and this isn't now anymore, and it wasn't just for young people and young adults, but we get to this third point and, and we're, we're broadening our scope again. For all of us, why is this so serious for us? Why does God give us in love the seventh commandment? Well, we've touched on it a bit, but we can say a few more things. First, this entire topic is so serious because physical intimacy in marriage is designed by God to strengthen and build up and help preserve that lifelong bond of marriage. Physical intimacy is given by God in His goodness and His love to His people in marriage as a help for husbands and wives to persevere in their marriage vows that they've made. Physical intimacy is just another factor in that marriage relationship that builds up that relationship, that makes it strong, that nurtures that bond of love that exists between husband and wife. And now to take that physical intimacy outside of marriage or before marriage, therefore, is not only to, to ruin the goodness of it, but oftentimes, it, it's, a force, it, it, it's a, an occasion for heartache and misery and complications and struggles when you finally enter into marriage. So that's why this is serious. Second, this entire topic is so serious because marriage and sexual intimacy within marriage is designed by God to be a reflection of that exclusive and intimate relationship that exists between God and His people and between Jesus and His church. In fact, it, it starts out with God in Himself. God Himself is a faithful, pure, holy covenant God. And within God Himself, there is a communion of, of essence. There is the sharing of one life within God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all share the same life. They share in the same essence, three persons in one being. They think the same. They love the same. They live the same. There is an exclusive bond of friendship among the three persons of the Trinity. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit love each other by sharing all that they are with each other. And when God establishes a relationship with His people in Christ... God loves His people that same way. That's what the covenant is, a reflection of God's own life within Himself, an intimate relationship of friendship, sharing of oneself that exists between God and His people. And then when God, in His institution of marriage, He did the same thing. He created an institution that was to be a reflection of that same covenant life between Christ and the church and God and His people. And so that's what marriage is. Marriage is a one flesh relationship between one man and one woman that reflects God's own one essence relationship within himself. And that reflects God's own one flesh relationship with his people. Just think of Jesus' relationship with his church. 
That's a one flesh relationship. We are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. We are united to him in an unbreakable bond of love and unity and and tenderness and compassion and sharing of life. And marriage is a reflection of that. And sexual intimacy, which is reserved for the marriage bond, is a reflection of that. Now that's rather astonishing to think about, beloved. The profound intimacy of marriage that takes place in sexual intercourse somehow has its spiritual counterpart and its higher reality in the relationship between Christ and His church. Right? If marriage is a picture of the one flesh relationship between Christ and His church, then the sexual intimacy that is reserved for marriage also is a picture, a physical reflection in some glorious but perhaps mysterious way of that intimacy, that spiritual intimacy and one flesh relationship of love and care and sharing that exists between Christ and His church. And adultery is so serious then because adultery mars that picture. It's an attack on that picture between Christ and His church. And finally, this topic is so serious because of this grand and glorious reality. Whether we are married or whether we are single, We are part of the bride of Jesus Christ. And our bodies and our souls are not our own. Our bodies, who I am as a male, who you are as a male or a female, our bodies have been purchased by Jesus Christ with His own shed blood on the cross. What? Know ye not that ye are purchased with a price? Ye are not your own. And now He, as the Lord of our bodies, who shed His blood to own and to possess us in body and soul, He now calls us to use our souls and bodies and all the parts of our bodies for Him and His glory. That's where we are in the catechism. We've been saved. We've been set free to live unto God. Jesus Christ has given us His Holy Spirit. He's established His rule of grace in our hearts. We are regenerated And now out of the life of Christ in us and out of thankfulness to God for what He has done in saving us and out of that love that God works within us to see Christ as our bridegroom, we press our bodies and souls and all that they are into the service of His glory and His honor. The body is not for fornication. The body is for the Lord and the Lord for the body. You are one flesh with the Lord Jesus Christ. You are bone of His bone and flesh of His flesh. And now we as Christians are called to live that way, whether in singleness or married life, to whichever the Lord calls us. And then congregation, when you you consider all of this, what we need to understand, and when we go home and we think maybe about these things, What we need to understand is this. All of this, the world simply doesn't understand. The world simply doesn't understand it. This is a peculiarly Christian sexual ethic. Again, I will say it. Ye are bought with a price. The world doesn't understand that. Ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. Be holy in your dress. Be holy in your behavior. 
Be holy in your language. Be holy in your entertainment, your use of the TV and internet in singleness and married life. And then be aware of this. Because you are Christ, because you are Christ, Christ gives you the power also to live in that calling He has called you to live in. More on that even next week as we consider Joseph. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank Thee that Thy Word is so honest and so practical. And it humbles us because we say with the apostle, oh, wretched man that I am. But then we immediately say, thanks be to God who gives us the victory in Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, that thy word might shape our hearts and shape our lives, shape our homes and families and this congregation as a whole that we might truly live a chaste and temperate life before Thee in love and all good works. And in that way, Lord, may we enjoy Thy blessing and may we see the goodness of the purity of Thy people and delight in that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.